on TV, online and on your smartphone. This is Ticker News. This episode of Talk Your Book is proudly brought to you by Honan, providing a complete range of insurance, risk and financial solutions. Called me up, told me to take a look, but stay stubborn as bulls and talk their own book. Get the money, get the money, get, get the money. Hi, I'm Chris Judd and this is Talkie Book. And today we're very lucky to be joined by Emmanuel Datt from Datt Capital. Now, Emmanuel, along with Tom Lambeth, I think you'd be the most requested guest we get to come back on the show. So now it's reporting season. I know there's plenty on. Thanks very much for, for coming in and taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having us back, Chris. Now, maybe most people, if they're regular listeners to the show, would have heard you speak about DAT Capital. But for those hearing you speak for the first time, maybe give us a quick overview of DAT Capital and, and how your two funds like to invest. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Chris. So um, we've been around uh, managing uh, money for sophisticated investors for almost six years now. And um, we run uh, two separate funds, um, a flagship fund, the Absolute Return Fund, uh, which has um, performed exceptionally well. We've returned about 16% um, net to our investors, um, annualized over that uh, time frame. And we've just recently opened up um, a small companies fund focusing on the smaller end of town. And um, yeah, so I'm very excited to sort of um, uh, be continuing. And what, what stock did you want to uh, talk about today? Uh, so today I wanted to talk to you about uh, a company uh, ASX listed um, called Yancol, which um, some of you may be familiar with. It's remarkably cheap. Maybe give us the, the 10,000 foot view of, of what Yancol do. Yeah, sure. So um, in a nutshell, Yancol um, is the ASX biggest pure coal player. Um, it produces about uh, 40 million tonnes of saleable coal per year. Um, spread across um, seven separate mines, so quite um, um, you know, diversified in terms of its production base. Um, all of these mines are located in New South Wales, which is um, a good thing these days, given the jurisdictional risk in Queensland. Even in Australia, there's jurisdictional <laughs> risk, isn't it? Just, yeah. just for the various state governments. Yeah, absolutely. Um, only one of the assets is actually based in Queensland. And um, in terms of the composition of their production, they uh, produce about 80 5% uh, thermal coal and 15% met coal. And they're dual listed. Talk us through yep. that listing structure and if that plays any relevance on, on how you view the stock. Yeah, not really. I think that they, I mean, they're dual listed on the ASX locally and um, on the Hong Kong exchange. So I think what that does is really um, provide Asian investors the opportunity to um, ha have exposure to these assets. Um, you know, the location of the mines themselves, as I mentioned, they're all Australian base, so of course an ASX listing does make sense. And you've got a number of assets, as you as you mentioned. Which of those assets are the most important from your perspective? Yeah, sure. Um, they well, they've bought um, a whole heap of assets. I probably won't go through them individually because yeah. we'll be here all day. But um, you know, they can be basically characterised as um, very low cost large-scale operations, um, primarily in New South Wales, and a large portion of um, the portfolio is actually, um, you know, assets that were owned by major miners like Rio Tinto and the whole whole suite of others, um, Glencore as well. So, and you've seen Whitehaven buy BHP's assets, yeah. and Stanmore uh, bought assets in the not too recent past. Yeah. Does it feel like Yankol are just in a mode of developing what they've got, and is it unlikely that they actually add to their portfolio? 
Uh, I think it's quite unlikely that they're going to add to their portfolio. So over time, you know, they've been around for the past 20 years or so. And over that time, they've sort of built up um, their sort of operation by sort of bolting on um, these various mines at different times. Uh, right now, they're sort of um, uh, in the stage of, I guess, harvesting returns is yeah. the way I like to, to call it. They've um, paid off all their debt. They're you know, debt free, very cash heavy. And um, I think it's time for shareholders to enjoy a bit, <laughs> a bit, of, the, a bit of that cash um, in, in our own pockets. Um, talk us through the register. Yeah. I, I mean, that may preclude them from buying more assets in Australia potentially. And I, I get the impression speaking to, to other managers, their register is a, maybe not a sticking point, but something they've got to get comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. And um, so uh, as you sort of allude to, you know, the major shareholder is a large Chinese entity called Yanquan um, uh, Energy, who are a Chinese utility, um, and they own 65% of the register. So that um, to us kind of um, precludes um, the company from purchasing other um, assets or other mines, I should say. Yeah. Um, just given the political sort of relationship between the two nations at this point in time. Um, so I, I, and that's why I say that there's really nowhere else for the, you know, cash to go except to shareholders. Um, I should, one point I should mention is that over the past three years, uh, production was constrained somewhat by, you know, a, a growth initiative in terms of, um, there was a lot of investment in, uh, renewing, uh, the mining fleet and, um, you know, improving the quality of the asset to sort of set a strong foundation for future growth. And um, I think we're in, you know, in the right place and right time to benefit from that, basically. And the third quarter production numbers spoke to that, didn't they? They were, yeah. they were really strong. Yeah. What sort of are you expecting, say, in, in calendar year 24 yeah. from their production numbers and, and whether it can grow on? Yeah, sure. So, so we're expecting um, this uh, coming half or quarter um, to de to really sort of solidify that um, production target of um, being in the high um, 30 million tons of saleable coal. Um, I see no reason why that shouldn't be achievable given um, the weather sort of worked in, in, in favor of the company, I should say. Um, yeah, so I'm expecting more of the same. Um, and that, of course, you know, being able to maintain high levels of production uh, will allow them to reduce their costs um, even further than where they are potentially, given you know the nature of the assets itself, and you know the historical cost base um, across the group going back you know two or three years was sort of in the high 60s, and um, you know the last quarter was I think they guided to the mid 90s. I think there's uh, potential scope for them to reduce that um, even further um, from a you know unit cost per ton basis. And I think if you spoke to people that had no interest in financial markets and you asked them to guess what coal demand was like in 2023, they would have said incredibly weak compared to 10 years ago and 20 years ago, and yeah. we're not going to need it for very much longer. Yeah. But it was actually, actually a record for coal demand worldwide in 23, up 1.4%. India yeah. grew at 8%, China mm. at 5%. There feels like there is a bit of a mismatch in the speed of the energy transition around perhaps how quickly politicians and, and people would, would like it to happen and, and how quickly yeah. it is actually happening. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that um, we first and foremost take a very pragmatic approach. And um, I think that, um, you know, governments can be ambitious in their outlooks. 
And um, I think in very much in this case, it's been, um, you know, they have been overly ambitious when it comes to, you know, the energy transition and the nature of the energy transition itself. Um, I personally think coal is going to be around for a lot longer than um, the government may think. And um, ultimately, I think we, you know, uh, the very basis of an electrical grid is very solid um, baseload um, electrical generation, not cyclical like um, a solar, you know, um, array or um, a wind turbine, for instance. And um, so you need, uh, you know, a very um, consistent baseload um, to support the grid and whatever um, that is, whether it's generated from coal or gas or uh, nuclear <laughs> is, is a sort of... Um, a uh, big one or one that's definitely in the public eye at the moment. Yeah. Um, you, you definitely need that from my perspective. And we saw Germany survive, um, you know, sanctions on, on Russian gas mm. post that invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. As well as turning off their nukes, which mm. was a wild decision because they were too non-environmentally friendly. Yeah. And what they did was plow that into to coal production, um, yeah which managed to, to stave off an electricity crisis um, mm -hmm. post that invasion and the, the sanctions on Russian gas. Do you think countries like Pakistan, other countries around the world saw that? I know Russia, Pakistan struggled to source gas yeah. post that uh, invasion of Ukraine. Do you think countries like that are seeing how Germany survived an energy crisis mm. and rather than trying to commit to some of the ambitious uh, targets mm. from COP28 and the like, they're thinking perhaps coal is, is how we can maintain our electricity grid and increase mm. um, the quality of life for our people. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I, th I think you nailed it, nailed it there, Chris, that, um, you know, in these developing economies, there generally is a shortage of electricity. Mm. So they're thinking about, well, how can I provide electricity to our um, population in the quickest way possible? Not necessarily, um, you know, um, worrying about oh well the you know, the lead time to build a nuclear reactor is um uh, you know it takes many years <laughs> to develop one um safely and um you know adequately um whereas i think all the onus is well you know in asia itself is just well we need the supply um today or in the very near term what's the quickest way to get there and, and it is a life and death situation exactly. for those countries isn't it if That's you can't right. have electricity you know the hospitals can't be powered you know, X, Y, Z. Yeah, absolutely. And look at what we've, um, some of us experienced in Melbourne recently yeah. <laughs> with all electric, uh, electrical outages. Um, and, um, you know, you try and extrapolate that to um, a very broad base of people overseas. And, um, you know, what would you rather have, electricity or not? <laughs> and so in, in countries like Australia, it's very hard to get new approvals for coal mines. Mm -hmm. Traditionally, it's an industry where there isn't a huge economic moat. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think the new ESG um, philosophies that, that the West has embraced has created an economic moat around businesses like Yankol, where in past generations there wasn't one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it was um, New Hope have recently, oh, I think it was last year, they had their um, new Ackland um, Brownfield um, extension development, I like to call it, um, permitted after 15 years in planning. Wow. And that was for a brownfield project, you know, which is basically an extension of an existing mine. So it really does uh, sort of give you an idea about what the regulatory moats are um, around the permitting of um, new production. And um, yeah, I think absolutely, you know, ideology does um, influence um, this process, unfortunately. 
And so just to finish off, maybe just give us an overview of, of what their market cap is, what do you think calendar year 24 earnings can be, yep. and what you're expecting from a, a dividend perspective. Yeah, sure. So their market cap is somewhere around uh, $7.5 billion in terms of enterprise value. Um, they've got about $1.5 billion um, of cash on the balance sheet. And uh, last quarter, they generated about 500 mil. Um, that's post-tax, post-capital um, expenditure. Um, so, you know, nice and clean. Yeah, wow. Um, so we certainly do expect to see um, a good chunk of that um, come back to shareholders. And um, we'd be very happy to receive a dividend of, um, you know, 50 to 70 cents, fully franked. Um, uh, that would be, you know, the ideal sort of case and um, one would be very happy um, to receive <laughs> and hold going forward. Well, outstanding. You paint a very clear picture as always. And I reckon it's a stock that your followers on Twitter will love to hear you speak about again. So thanks very much for coming back on the show. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having us, Chris. Thanks, mate.